Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of this day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather and to worship you here in this place. God, we ask that, uh, that your Holy Spirit truly would be present, that it would be he who opens our ears, opens our minds, opens our hearts to the truth that you have for us today as we get into further into <clears throat> these letters to the seven churches, God. They, uh, they get a bit more confusing, but also they get more challenging. And so, God, rather than us being defensive, uh, open our ears and our hearts and our minds that we might hear what you have for us, that we would be able to hear your truth and put it to work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've got your Bible with you, we're in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Today, things start to get serious. Today, if we're going to get into this text and see what it says to us, they get a little bit uncomfortable. We're going to look at some truth for some of us, maybe for all of us, maybe for us as a people, as a nation, that isn't exactly pleasant. But if we want to be prepared to meet Jesus on the day that He returns, we have got to take God's Word seriously. We've got to take the encouragement seriously and to heart. But then we also have to take the tough stuff. We have to take the, the challenges. We've got to take the... The times when Jesus is in Revelation telling us what he's not happy about in these churches, that seriously as well. And so this stuff is so important to our faith walk with Jesus. There's a lot of information. If you're a note taker, you're going to have to write really fast or go back and pick up the pieces online because I, I want to get through all of this section, but there's a lot of it to get done. Revelations 2, starting in verse 12. Here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you'll hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with the new name written on the stone that no one except the one who that no one knows except the one who receives it. Church in Pergamum, Turkey, two thousand years ago, it's now modern Bergama. Two thousand years ago, Pergamum was known as a progressive, innovative, forward-thinking, not afraid to be inventive and to be daring city. It was a great place to live. They invented things like parchment paper. They were home to the world's first ever mental hospital. And many of the political decisions that affected Asia Minor and what we would now understand as Eastern Europe, many of those decisions were made in Pergamum. Scholars, a lot of them at least, believe that the reference to Satan was because of three temples that the Romans had in Pergamum. A temple to Zeus, a temple to the goddess Athena, and then statues and places to worship the Roman emperors. So we're going to look into that further in a minute, but in its day and still today, it was a top tourist attraction. It has an amphitheater that's built into the side of a steep hill that can seat 10,000 people. And so today, 
we leave that behind as text, or as context rather, and we start getting into Revelation where today it starts to become a little bit more obscure. We've got to work a little harder to make sense of it. And it's not going to be so comfortable. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, remember, this is Jesus who is speaking through this angel in a vision to John. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus is describing himself as the one that has the sharp two-edged sword. That would have been a significant thing to the people living in this part of the world that was under Roman occupation because every single Roman soldier carried a sword. And both sides of it were sharp. It wasn't like there was a business end and a, you're getting out of line, I'm just going to thump you a little bit end. Both sides of that sword were sharp. And they knew it. Go back to our study, the full armor of God in Ephesians 6. And the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is described as the Word. Jesus Himself is the one with the two-edged sword of God's Word. One edge, then this, this one sharp edge is the law. The law of God that He expects us, has commanded us to keep. And the Bible says that that sword is so sharp that it can cut so deep as to separate sin from sinner. Which gets us to the other half of the sword. is The half of the sword, the other edge rather, is the love and the grace of God that we know through Jesus and salvation in Him that heals and restores after our repentance when we don't follow God's will. So this two-edged sword is law and grace. It's the rules that God expects us to follow for our own good as well as for His and the grace that He offers us in Jesus when we don't. And so that grace demands that we speak God's truth. Otherwise, it's cheap grace that makes us feel better even though we really don't learn anything and we walk away unchanged. And so today, we are going to speak God's truth. It goes on in verse 13. I know where you dwell, Jesus says, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This is an interesting statement. Jesus is saying that he knows where Satan lives. He knows where Satan's throne is. And then he goes on and he tells us, see, we know that Satan is the ruler of this world. John 2.31, excuse me, 12.31 tells us that. He's the ruler of this world because until the day of judgment, hell is an empty place. When Jesus went to the man who was uh, filled with all of those demons and he cast the demons out and the demons beg him, please, please don't send us into the abyss. The abyss was outer darkness. And so what Jesus did is he sent them into the pigs and the pigs jumped off the cliff to end their own lives. And that caused quite a furor in town because now this Jesus guy is killing our livestock. There isn't a hell yet. Satan is ruling this world. Now, Jesus is telling us that he knows where Satan's throne is. And then he gives us clues as to how it is that we might find it. We're going to take a look at that because it's just too significant to pass up. Most commentaries, most of the things that I read over the last couple of weeks, say that Satan's throne is probably a reference to Zeus's throne here in Pergamum, to, to Athena's throne in Pergamum, and to all those Roman emperors that they're supposed to be worshiping as though they were gods, small g. The thing is, none of them really, other than the Roman emperors while they were living, are to be feared. They really can't be trusted with much. But the commentators all ignored the martyrdom of Antipas, which is tied in that same sentence that Jesus gives. So I started doing some digging about him. 
real guy, lived in Pergamum, was a significant part of the church, and he was martyred or murdered by Nero in the 61st year of the, uh, after Jesus' birth. 61 AD, he's murdered. It's interesting, though, because he wasn't murdered in Pergamum. History tells us very clearly that Antipas was roasted alive in a bronze bull. And a bronze bull would have been what they used to worship. That would have been the appearance of Baal, the god that goes back, a small g god that goes back thousands of years. Lots of people had worshipped Baal. He was roasted alive in this bronze bull representing Baal, not in Pergamum, but history says in a very different place. Are you ready for this? Geneva, Switzerland. Not too far away. So now be careful with the conspiracy theory thoughts here. This is God's word. This isn't a, a Fox News or CNN a special edition anything. This is God's word. And what we need to do is put the pieces of history together to try to understand what's actually going on. That's a lot of what Revelation is. Geneva, Switzerland. Maybe Switzerland isn't the neutral place that we think it is. Maybe. But Geneva, let that just sink in, sink in for a moment. It's not actually named in the Bible. But that's where Antipas was murdered. Jesus is drawing a connection between his martyrdom and Satan's throne. And it seems that the statement that he's making is that Satan's earthly throne sits in Geneva, Switzerland. It's interesting because the organization, the United Nations, that has been pushing a one-world government since the day of its inception has an office in Geneva. Last year, our President Biden and Russian President Putin, Putin had their first face-to-face meeting in Geneva. The highly controversial globalist World Economic Forum is held in Davos, which is in Geneva. The World Health Organization had an emergency meeting this last March because the COVID pandemic was coming to a close too quickly and they feared the world was relaxing too much over the COVID scare. That was in Geneva. Now, on a side note, it's, it's interesting that the Aslepian in Pergamum, which was the mental hospital, was the world headquarters for a very large network of healing centers throughout the Roman Emperor, Empire. You might recognize that word because Asclepius was the Roman god of healing. Maybe you didn't know that, but maybe what you do recognize is the symbol for medicine, which is the caduceus, also known as the rod of Asclepius. All of which ties in to this passage in Romans, or excuse me, in Revelation. It's a curious connection. Is it a coincidence? Maybe. But it seems that Jesus is putting something forward he wants us to understand. The list of groups that meet in Geneva, world organization groups, a lot of them that meet in quiet and in silence and in secret, seem to gather in Geneva. Furthermore, the idea of a singular individual leading a global government is referenced in Revelation 13. It's not some crazy conspiracy idea. The Bible actually talks about it. It's the Antichrist and the beast. Revelation 13:16. he also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has that mark, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now remember, this is all in your Bible. If you choose to continue reading Revelations beyond the seven churches, you will get to Revelation 13. You will encounter those verses. Later on in 13, 
Revelation talks about the rule of the Antichrist who will lead many people astray from Jesus, even people who've said that they believe in Jesus. And of the mark of the beast and the very convincing-sounding false prophet that's going to preach a false message to draw people away. So there's a lot of talk these days about people trying to interpret the book of Revelation, trying to identify who the prophet might be, who the Antichrist is. And there's been names that have been put out all over the place for years. And what the mark of the beast is. What does the number 666 refer to? The day is going to come when all of that stuff is going to make sense. It's all going to be clear to us. But the thing is that none of that's going to matter if you haven't most importantly identified yourself as a child of God saved by the blood of Jesus. If Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, His death for your sins, isn't something that you've received and accepted Him as your Savior, all the rest of that stuff is just knowledge that's worth nothing to you. It's important that we're closely connected to God and that we turn not from God the way the enemy would want us to, but from all of the things and the teachings that are not from God so that we can know and discern the truth from lies because the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to try to trick us. They're going to try to steer us away from Jesus. They're going to make all kinds of other things sound convincing and good. Romans 1.25 says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Guess who the creature is? That's us. And it's happening right before us, our very eyes in our world, in our country, right now today. We're worshipping us in most parts of America more than we're worshipping God. Jesus is condemning the Christians in the church in Pergamum, or excuse me, commending the Christians in the church in Pergamum for their faithfulness. They've held fast to his name, even in the midst of persecution and this martyrdom of one of their own. So it's important to understand something about the Greek word for martyr. It's martyr. Martyr has two different uh, renderings in English when we translate it. The first one is for martyr, someone who uh, their life is given up because of their faith. They're murdered for what they believe. But there's a second meaning. The exact same word is translated a different way in a different context. It's also translated witness. So the early Christians understood in this time of persecution that when you become a believer in Jesus, you've got to be public about it because your life has changed, your eternity has changed. Jesus has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. And they were out telling everybody as a witness, knowing full well that witnessing for Jesus might cost them their lives. They could be murdered for that commitment. When a first century person declared their submission to Jesus, they did so knowing that commitment could cost their lives. And yet they did it willingly anyway. You heard me say a couple of weeks ago when Charmaine was here, it's so easy to be a Christian, Christian in America. Christians in the church fight about the dumbest, most irrelevant things. 2,000 years ago and in other parts of the world, Christians are fighting for their lives. And they're willingly laying them down for the name of Jesus. These were faithful and committed people. Make no mistake. But Jesus also said in verse 14, I have a few things against you. This is where we need to perk up. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. There is this passage in the Old Testament book of Numbers, Numbers 21. And there's this prophet named Balaam. And he started out as one of the good guys. 
Balaam was a good guy, but the problem is he sold out and he turned teams and he became a, a, an employee of this king Balak. And he wasn't a good guy anymore. And the reason that Balak hired him is he brought him on board to somehow or another begin to weaken the Israelites, to try to somehow take away some of their power, to do, to do something to, to get into their, their midst and curse the nation. So Balaam's plan to weaken Israel was this. He was going to use Moabite women to, to seduce the men of Israel to marry them and then lead them to worship false gods and to eat food that had been given as sacrifice to those gods. Balaam's plan was to use God's gift of human sexuality against human beings. That was his plan. And it worked. With the introduction of unnatural and ungodly people, because God had already told the Israelites to stay pure, the introduction of these other people came the introduction to unnatural and ungodly ideas and acts. They were tricked by being told that these women were good and desirable. And suddenly God's chosen people began to intermarry and follow other gods, small g, to eat food that had been offered and was the object of sacrifice to those false gods, and to have relationships with these women who were there to weaken their nation and to lead them away from God. Balaam's plan worked. Israel was rooted in God but became yoked or connected to worldliness because of their sexuality, their attraction to foreign women. And the result was that it polluted and altered their commitment to and relationship with God. And Israel believed the lies of the enemy and was weakened. And the warning for us is, if we're not careful, the same thing will happen to us. The world will convince us that there are things that are good that are not good. Things that God has called evil that the world says are good. Things that we have to believe or else that God has said don't believe. And so we hear passages like this in the Bible, especially, I think, in the Old Testament. And we think, that's cute. That's kind of quaint. Those people, they didn't understand they didn't have the knowledge that we have. They didn't have the technology that we have. You know, they, they were simple, and you can't really ask any more of them. You can't expect much more. And yet we're supposed to take this warning as a serious warning to us. Because the same thing happens in our world today. Partaking in rituals or ideas or practices that involve or invoke false gods that bring only self-pleasure and taking God's created intention for human sexuality and turning it into ungodly immorality. That's not quaint and that's not cute. It's serious, it's dangerous, and it's deadly. And the Bible's talking about it 2,000 years ago. It's what the ancient Canaanites who worshipped Baal and the Greeks that came along after them with their fertility goddesses and sacrificed infants at the gates of hell. That's what was happening. This is the kind of practice God is talking about. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And in our world today, if you're not willing to do that, well, then you just better tolerate the difference and be quiet. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And the ones who are most at risk of doing that are us as Christians because the world wants us quiet. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. But in America today, we do things a little bit differently, don't we? We make evil sound desirable, and then we call it good and we pass laws. That's what we do in America. 
We pass laws and enact ordinances and, and exert social pressure all in the name of exchanging God's truth for a lie. We convince ourselves that in America it is our right, it is our responsibility to allow and to tolerate that. Now is the time that we need to apply these warnings and revelation to our lives, yours and mine, to protect our families and our children and our churches. It's not comfortable. It isn't fun. But if we're going to follow Scripture, we need to look at it. So here we go. You know what people today are worshiping more than anything else from my observation? We are worshiping more than anything else the insatiable small g God of self. We worship what we want. We worship what we think we deserve. We worship what we think we've earned. We worship what we think we should have, even if it's somebody else's. We worship that insatiable small g God of self. When we hear protests and screams for the right to end lives through abortion, we're worshiping self. When we take away the rights of parents in schools to defend their children from family-destroying innocence-stealing adults who want to justify their own gender identity confusion by pushing children to question and doubt and alter their God-appointed gender. We're serving self. A lot of candidates on both sides of the aisle ran on platforms addressing these issues. The folks that we just elected into power in our nation are going to be passing new and in some cases more dangerous laws to further erode the American family. The warnings and revelation are for us, folks. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to admit it. But all of us are guilty of worshiping false gods and idols. It's why it's in the Bible. It's why God talks so much about it. We all do it, and that's why God warns us against it. We worship other gods by doing Simple things that might seem harmless, but what they really do is they open the door to the enemy. And the enemy can't get into your mind or your life without you opening the door and allowing him in. You, we essentially have to invite him in through our actions, through our choices, through our thoughts. Other gods that we worship are simple things like money, status, position, popularity, power, or, or at least the illusion of it that we think that we have. One of the most popular right now is our own sense of religious self-righteousness. I know what I believe. I don't care what the Bible says, and I'm right. The Bible doesn't back up what you believe, then you probably ought to better take another look at it. So how about this? This is simple. This is going to jump on some toes. Think about other gods and false idols. How many of you would be willing to put up a shrine of Buddha in your house? Nobody? Really? Come on, adventurous bunch, aren't we? You know, it's just like a, a little jade statue on a little table, a couple of candles for a shrine to Buddha. Would you do that? But you know, here's the thing. This is one of the things that's really beginning to tear apart Christians from Christians because Christians bow to other gods when they use these meditative poses in yoga that are designed to achieve self-realization and enlightenment in Buddhism. You don't have to put up the shrine. You're doing the prayers. Oh, but we like to defend it and we get angry and we get offended when people say that we can't. If you want true self-realization, read your Bible. You know why I say to read your Bible? Because God is generous in explaining in His Word who you are to Him and who He created you to be. You want self-realization? Don't go to the, the Buddhist idea of nirvana, which is mental nothingness. 
Go to God's Word, which is rich, telling you who you are to your Creator. You know another thing that we do? We make political parties idols in America, and we turn politicians into small-g gods when we believe that, that our favorite politician is the only one that can save us. It used to be that it was good advice not to talk with family about religion and politics. Today, we've turned politics into a religion. You hear me say an awful lot up here. If people know you more as a Democrat or a Republican as a Christian, you're a part of the problem in America. Yeah, it's not popular, but it's true. The point of all that is that these warnings are real and as relevant today as the day that they were written. And we need to be wise and discerning, not gullible and self-serving. And when we defend what we want, what we're doing is worshiping us. If you happen to find yourself offended at any of this, take that offense to God because it's His Word that I'm preaching here. Maybe what we feel as offense is really the Holy Spirit blessing us with an uncomfortable sense of conviction, inviting us to an opportunity to turn from our beliefs and go back to God to repent, which is exactly what Revelation is talking about. Rather than being offended, maybe we should be repentant. Verse 15, So also, some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It's a little bit confusing about who they are. There might have been a guy, or it might have just been a group, that was choosing to go into the churches or was arising within the church in Pergamum and lead people away from godly teaching toward their perverted belief. They were people who rose up from within the church community and they turned people toward a teaching other than what the church was called to preach. They directed people away from the appointed leaders and sound teaching and Scripture warns us about wolves among the sheep. Messages like this aren't popular in churches today. People get offended. We don't like to think that, that these things we're told uh, have to be okay and tolerated. We just have to leave them alone. No, we don't. In fact, God warns us not to. Verse 16, Jesus says this, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus, like John the Baptist, calls for repentance and a return to godliness. And that means that we have to put down ourselves as our own version of God and the idols that we want to follow. This is for believers who have strayed, and this is for any newcomers who might claim a faith in Jesus, but whose life is still defined and ruled by worldly ways and sin. See, if they continue to live in this sinful way of life, Jesus says He's going to return and punish them for their sins. How? They'll be judged by the Word of God, and so will you and I. God, in His Word, determines human sin. He doesn't hide it. He makes it clear. Again, Jesus alone is the one who judges people for our sin. We are to recognize sin, but Jesus alone is the one who judges us for our sin. Jesus alone is the one who punishes us for our sinfulness. As much as we like to take that responsibility on ourselves and go get somebody who we think that they're not living the way they should, and then we say, man, I'm just being a good Christian soldier for this. I'm just helping God out. God says no. God's not looking for that help from us. Romans 2, Paul speaks to people who want to stand in judgment over others, and he says this, You have no excuse. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. 
Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Have you ever noticed that people who are the judgy types, who like to point out the sins of others, are hyper-aware of those sins because so often it's the very same sin that they struggle with. It's a sin that they know best. Jesus is making clear that that's what's happening. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think it's the Bible's way of saying, listen up. Don't ignore God's warning to you. Don't ignore it and listen. Understand. But how often do we ignore God because we don't like what God says? How often do we choose what we want and we ignore what God wants for us? How often do we choose what we want to become rather than to become what God created us to be? Now, Revelation, as we go from here, begins to sound a little bit strange. So let's spend a moment to hear what the Spirit says. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. In Hebrews 9.4, it talks about there being a jar of manna that was saved after the Israelites fled Egypt, that they put in the Ark of the Covenant along with the Ten Commandments. Another part of the Bible says that all that's there is the Ten Commandments. The Romans 4 text contradicts that a little bit. It added a couple of things. However, in Revelation, the, the reference to hidden manna is God's truth kept and revealed in His Word for all of those whose salvation is in Jesus. The manna from the Bible, the hidden manna that he's talking about, is spiritual food that sustains Christian believers until the day of Jesus' return. If you want to know how to make it through a hard day, go to God's Word. That's where the food for us as believers is. If you're not sure who you are, who you're created to be, who you're supposed to become, go to God's Word. It's going to give you the foundational pieces that you're not going to have any need to question. And then he goes on, he says, I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that nobody knows except the one who receives it. doesn't make sense to us, but 2,000 years ago it made all the sense in the world. When a, a man or a woman had been accused of a crime and it went to what we would call a jury trial, oftentimes the jury would vote using a white stone for innocent and a black stone for guilty. And they would count the number of stones and a person's fate was determined. Oftentimes, if a person was found guilty, they'd be given a black stone as a reminder of the judgment against them. However, if a man was found innocent of the charges against him, he was given a white stone as a sign to show anybody who would ask, see, I was found guilty. They, they found me guilty. Yes, I was charged with it. Yes, a group of people made a decision. And this stone shows my innocence. In this passage, the white stone is what we're given as a symbol of our being found not guilty by the grace of God through salvation in Jesus of the sins that we have committed and are guilty of. That's the white stone. And then it goes on and it says, a new name. The new name signifies the new creation in Christ that we become. We talk about when, when we give our lives to Jesus, we become a new creation in Him. We become a new creation and this new name is the new character of holiness that we're given by God in Jesus. I don't know anybody that, that has become a Christian, has stepped forward and been obedient in baptism, who didn't want to be a new person, who didn't want to be a changed person. We want to be the new creation that God promises that we become, but we don't always feel like we are. And, and the reason is not because God's promise is incomplete. It's because our process is wrong. If you've given your life to Jesus, God says you're a new creation. That's the end of it. You are. God's promise of always right. God always keeps His promises. 
The problem is our process because what happens when we run into a situation or a temptation or we run into something that we're concerned about or we're worried or we're not sure how we're going to get through, rather than relying on our new relationship with Jesus and what He says to us, we reach back into the brokenness of our past and we do the same thing that didn't work before. It's our process that's wrong, not God's process. Excuse me, not God's promise. We choose the things of the world when we say we want the things of God. That's what God's telling the church in Pergamum. We want relationship and connection with God, but we're always looking for shortcuts. How do I not have to work so hard? How can I get it easier? The enemy of God is a master of shortcuts. If yoga is about uh, self-realization, it's a shortcut to the true peace an understanding of who we are as children of God. Sin is a shortcut to get the things that we want when in reality God calls us to wait for the blessings that He has to offer us. All of human sexuality and gender issues that we're experiencing in our nation these days are a shortcut to the promise of contentment in our God-given identity and personhood. It's the world saying you can get what you want and you can become who you want immediately. You don't have to wait. And yet, maturing as a Christian is a process. We even shortcut the privilege of prayer. Did you know that on Amazon, I I looked this up, I found it, didn't buy one, believe me. Do you know that on Amazon now, you can buy a Holy Spirit prayer board? Or Holy Spirit talking board? You can, it's a game. It's called Holy Spirit talking board. Uh, The ad says it's how you can directly connect to the Holy Spirit through the words and the the pieces of this game, what it amounts to being is a Christian Ouija board. Don't be mistaken. But do you know how many Christians are going to buy this thing going, well, God doesn't seem to listen to my prayer, so I'm going to see what he's got to say through this thing. That's how the enemy gets into our homes. That's how the enemy gets into our minds. That's how the enemy take over our hearts because we want a shortcut to the good things of God. I promise you there are church folks who's going to buy the, who are going to buy those things instead of spending the time praying and building their relationship with God because they want a shortcut. These letters to the churches, they're so important for us to understand. Don't settle for shortcuts. Don't settle for the enemy telling you there's a quicker way there. Don't settle or fall for false religions. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't, don't believe it when the world says that you've, you've got to tolerate and give in and agree and just be quiet. No, you don't. God's clear about what it is that He asks from us. Take the time to know the truth of God for yourself as revealed in His Word. Trust in God's promises. Trust in God's timing. Because God in His ways and His timing are always perfect. There are no shortcuts to a deep and healthy relationship with God. And He lays out the process that we can make that happen in His Word. We spend time in His Word and we spend time in prayer with Him. There's no shortcut to that. But you know, once you get started and realize what God is really inviting us to, you don't want a shortcut. The world the world wants us to worship any and everything out there except for God. God just wants us to recognize His true worth and worship Him. As always, the choice is ours. What are you going to choose? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. You make it so clear. And God, when we slow down and we tear this apart and we take a look at the world around us, 
It's so easy to see how we're deceived, how we're tricked, how we're convinced of, of things that really are completely against your heart, your character, your will for us. We see how quickly we fall for what is evil and believe that it's good because that's what we're told. But God, here in this place, in the church that you have given us, as the bride of Christ to lean on and lean into your word, we need to talk about and to study and to know even the difficult things. We need to tell them and say what they are because, Jesus, you are coming back. God, we want everybody, everybody who is within earshot of this place, online, live in person, people that we talk to, work with, family. God, we want all of them to know you. We want all of them to spend an eternity in heaven. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus that we cannot do for ourselves. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.